Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Burke, and I'm a resident solutions architect at Databricks. And I have my co-host with me. I'm Ben Wilson, a former data scientist and machine learning engineer, now focuses on building MLOps tooling at Databricks. Nice. So today we're going to be talking about ChatGPT. And the one-liner of what it does is it's essentially a chatbot that you can interact with will write code, it will distill knowledge, and it will summarize text. And some of the two, the two crazy facts that I found on the internet were, um, first, it got a B on the Wharton MBA final exam. So one of the most reputable MBA programs in the world. Uh, it, it could pass that test, which is pretty mind-blowing. Um, and then also, it passes the Turing test. So there was a study that tested whether people could determine if an article, I think it was a 200-token article, whether it was written by a person or ChatGPT, and the success rate was 52%. So it was exactly a coin flip. So ChatGPT is an impressive technology to say the least, and today we're gonna be talking about what it is and how you can learn more about it. So we're gonna be using sort of an FAQ structure, and we're gonna start off with the first question, which is, what is OpenAI? Now, Ben, have you heard of OpenAI before? I have. Uh, Very impressive company. Um, Their first big claim to fame, where I became aware of them, was the original, you know, GPT-1 model that that was out there. And some of the pretty impressive things that, uh, that it was capable of doing. And there was sort of a light buzz around them uh, around that time. And they started just dropping more and more pre-trained models out there for people to use that were far more advanced than anything uh, that was out there at the time. Got you. Yeah. Um, since then, they've iterated and have developed some new products. So on their products page, they list three. The first one is Whisper, which is a speech recognition and transcription framework. The second is Dolly. And if you guys were paying attention six months ago, Dolly was the, the, the craziest thing you've ever seen. It can generate a Monet-style painting of mice on a beach playing the guitar. And it was pretty legit. Uh, so Dolly is image generation from written descriptions. And then ChatGPT is check, text generation, summarization, and analysis. So those, those are their core products. And it was founded in 2015 and has grown dramatically. And it has around 600 employees right now, according to LinkedIn. One final point that's interesting is Microsoft has a 49% stake. So they're probably going to be a Microsoft company if 49% it already is not enough to make them a Microsoft company. So there's point number one. Uh, for point number two, let's talk about sort of the pricing of ChatGPT. Um, there are a variety of ChatGPT3 versions. Um, the most powerful parent model is called DaVinci. And this is priced at 20 cents per 1000 tokens and a token is a word. Um, but there are other ones like ADA, which is the fastest one and least powerful, but it's still pretty robust. And it is 0.0004 cents per 1000 tokens. So depending upon your use case, you can get speed versus robustness. Ben, have you ever worked with the parent model DaVinci at all? Personally, no. Um... I've talked to people that that subscribe to their service and the anecdotal responses that they've given is that 
it is sufficiently more advanced than than the free thing that's out there, which is ChatGPT three that, that you hear in the news and you see people playing with. And uh, some of us have extensively played with it, but you got to pay to play uh, with any service like that. Um, so if if people are really serious about using a, a language model like this and want to dedicate a bit of time for session level sort of contextual awareness uh, to get DaVinci to respond to problem statements in, in a way that are going to be useful for your company. Uh, it is by far, in my opinion, uh, the most advanced thing out there. It's great from, from what people have told me. I've just played with ChatGPT3 a lot, and it is impressive. And so you said one of the advantages theoretically of DaVinci is contextual knowledge given in a single session. Yep. What else could ChatGPT be better at that DaVinci theoretically would fill in the gaps for? Uh, one thing that I noticed actually yesterday, because I'm working on a project right now that interfaces with some of their pre-trained models that they've they've released in the past. And I wanted to see uh, if anybody's listening from Databricks. This was after hours. But uh, <laughs> I wanted to see if I could train a ChatGPT2 model uh, from you know, Hugging Face Transformers. I wanted to retrain it on some data. And then I wanted to have a, you know, ask it a bunch of questions and see what the responses are from both uh, like the pre-trained raw and then me retraining a little bit. Um, and it, the, the pre-trained raw did, didn't actually answer questions all that well. Um, even within the, the context of a session, it got pretty confused about some things. And then after retraining it, it, it definitely improved quite a bit. But then I took the output, I took the actual code that I wrote, and then I took the simulated inputs for a, a user to ask questions of the bot and pasted it to ChatGPT3. It knew what I was doing. It knew what libraries I was using. And it, it was like, oh, you're using the Transformers library and you're using the predecessor to me, which is ChatGPT2. Uh, and this session had gone on for a while, so I, it knew kind of the sort of questions I was asking. And it analyzed the code and was like, oh, you're having a user loop through a bunch of interactions, but you're not waiting for the responses from the bot. So it understood the code that I was doing and it knew that it actually wrote that it understood I was doing this for testing purposes. Uh, and then it rewrote the code a little bit as an example and said, if you wanted to actually open this up for a human to interact with it, you would not do this. You would do this instead. And I was looking at it. I was like, yeah, that's pretty, that's, that's exactly how I'd write it. It's pretty cool. And then I asked it, I said, what do you think the output is going to be from these questions? And it generated answers that were so unbelievably flawless uh, that when I told it what the output was, its response was, um, I can see why that would be this case. I'm trained on much more data. That's why I answered it in this way. And it was like clever responses that it had. It was something that I would expect a witty and mildly sarcastic person to answer because I, I told it to interact with me in that in that fashion and it was starting to pick up on that and then I asked it like hey if I wanted to take this model and I wanted to uh, put it into a pipeline uh, how would I do that so it, it wrote the code for me and then 
I looked at it. I was like, well, wouldn't it be more efficient if we did this instead? And it responded with, yes, that he's like, oh, you're right. This would be more efficient. And here's the code for that, for what you just explained to me. So it adapted in that way from, from that context. And then I asked it something that I knew was impossible within the library because I started asking it to, okay, how would I save the model? How would I save the configuration for the model? How would I save the tokenizer? And how would I save the configuration for the tokenizer? And then within the trainer object that I'm creating, how do I save the trainer? So the first four of those questions, saving the model, it knew the API, it gave it to me, it wrote a function around it. I was like, yep, that's awesome. The configs, it pulled those out correctly. It was the exact API. I knew for a fact that you couldn't save the trainer object. There's no API for that because it wraps a bunch of C libraries and there's some partial functions in uh, Lambda expressions that you can't save uh, the state of. It got creative and it generated a save underscore trainer method and wrote code as though like that would be a, an API that would be part of the package. It, was, it actually wrote, it like, this is how you would save a trainer object. And a trainer object contains these aspects. And this is the method that, that you would apply a path to on your local file system. And I looked at it. I just stood there staring at the screen. Like, I can't believe it just tried to BS me. This is mind-blowing. Like, <laughs> it should know because it has access to this repository. It should have that knowledge of what methods are available. I looked in the GitHub history to see, did did Hugging Face ever have a save trainer method? No history of it whatsoever in the entire history of the repo. So I called it out. And I was like, hey, dude, like, there's no method for this. Um, and this is the, the exception that you get if you try to do that. And it, it responded with like, yes, you're right. I was simply inferring that this might be something that would exist. Now I understand. Thank you for telling me that this is not possible. So that's what the context is for these things. Like it's, it saves the state of that memory of your entire session based on a user ID token. And it understands that's how it's knowing what to respond when there's a thousand different users that are using an instance of the model, what to respond to each individual user based on that contextual history. Got it. And DaVinci theoretically would not do that and have a better answer. Uh, it's got access to it, a whole lot more information. So it, token embeddings are done in the data in these models instead of within the actual model framework itself. So it's got more data that it has access to, but it has an order of magnitude more nodes in order to access sort of the, the historical reference of token relationships as it's passing through these sequences. So it can craft more complex sentences it can understand more when it any of these models when they're generating text that goes to an end user they'll generate a sentence that is of some sort of fixed length it can't produce more than that the number of nodes that are available on the output of it so it does that but it'll generate that one sentence and then it uses the the context of the, what they just generated to generate the next sec, you know sequence of of text and DaVinci is capable of doing that over a, a much larger uh, history. So it can generate maybe a paragraph at a time that has more sort of lucid connections between each of those, those topics. Now, ChatGPT3 is fantastic at creating paragraphs of text. 
because of how well it can refer to the previous state. Uh, but DaVinci is just going to be far more advanced at that. So yeah, to summarize there, within the chat GPT product offering, there are a variety of different price points depending upon latency requirements and sort of how good you want your responses to be. So next, moving on, let's talk about what GPT actually stands for. So GPT can be called a general purpose technology, but in this case, it stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Ben, do you have a one-liner ready for how those work? I mean, the generative aspect is it's creating, you know, tokens. So we read in a sentence that is in UTF-8 encoding. So we're writing words. Uh, No language model or deep learning model or machine learning model in in general has a concept of what to do with text. Uh, There's no definitive relationship between them uh, that you can mathematically manipulate. So it gets tokenized. um, And these tokens then go through the model architecture to uh, figure out what the relationship is to that collection of of tensor objects, those indexes that they get passed in. And the generative aspect of that is looking at the output of it. And then the architecture says, I need to find relationships between the tokens that I'm, that I'm producing based on what was sent to me to provide some sort of response. And the architecture is pretty complex for that model. I have no idea what the Da Vinci architecture is. Um, that, that is, that is their bread and butter. Uh, I don't, I don't think anybody's ever going to know it who doesn't work for open AI. Uh, I imagine it's incredibly complicated, um, because those people are geniuses and they've worked really hard at that. Uh, but the, the, the idea is it's going to produce sequences of, of tokens that have relation, you know, relations between them that have been trained to be relevant in response to a collection of tokens that come in and it has like a memory save state. So it's like, Hey, I generate this sequence. Then when I generate my next one, I need to generate another, you know, set of sequences. So there's a a concept of recursion that's happening until it, it knows that it is exhausted. uh, The idea that it's trying to convey. Right. So it's sequence in sequence out. Yes sequence in multiple sequences out right so with all that we've we've been talking about how it's an absolutely massive set of knowledge Um, the model itself is giant and then the training data must have been just almost incomprehensible so i actually did some research to figure out what that training data looked like so first from a compute perspective microsoft built a supercomputer for OpenAI. And this supercomputer is, according to the the listing of the top supercomputers in the world, it's in the top five in terms of power. It has 285,000 CPU cores, 10,000 GPUs, and then 400 gigabytes per second of network connectivity for each GPU server. That's a a pretty big computer. Um, But with all that, it still took months for the model to train. Ben, what's the longest training time you've ever seen for a model you've been working on? That I've personally been working on? 
uh, that was part of a project that I had to do. Uh, 10 days is the biggest. And we used quite a bit of, of GPU hardware for, it was a, a deep learning problem um, for image classification. But for projects that I've worked with teams on, uh, we haven't come to this level, or I personally haven't seen something that's that's this big. Usually you have a dedicated team of engineer specialists that are working with the data science team. So you don't call a vendor to help you with that. You just hire the people. That's what OpenAI is. They, they don't need any help. Um, they needed help, you know, working with Microsoft to, for all that hardware, because uh, that's not cheap uh, to build that server and keep it running and just the AC bill alone is probably astronomical. But for stuff that I've worked with teams, we've had stuff that has run for weeks on end uh, for deep learning training, usually NLP stuff. So anytime you're doing, um, if you're doing transfer learning, you're probably not going to see training times of that long. But if you're doing something where you're implementing a novel architecture the first time ever and you're running through, you know, you start small and you're like, hey, I'm going to train on 10,000, you know, 10,000 training set entries against, you know, 100 test validation data sets that are labeled. You do that to make sure that your model architecture just works and it doesn't blow up and that it's showing some sort of improvement on each epoch. But then when you're ready to actually train the thing, you're talking about millions of events, uh, of label events, sometimes even billions. And when you're talking model architectures of this size, the number of nodes that have weight connections between them, each of those is a, a mathematical computation that has to be done for each iteration, each epoch as you know, learning over that training set over and over and over again. It takes a long time. These are expensive things to build from scratch. Yeah, speaking of expensive, I looked up how much, uh, well, at least the estimate for how much it costs to train. And experts say it was around $4.6 million to train. I believe it. And building the supercomputer is completely not included in this cost. So just for running. There's no way. Um, yeah, at all. Probably... I would estimate that four of those server racks in that supercomputer, um, not server modules, not like a, a 4U module or an 8U module, but the full stack, you know, rack, four of those is probably around $5 million. They probably have 400 full-size racks for that, that computer, maybe 500. That, that's a big machine. Yeah, that's so a lot of network cards too. It's yeah. a lot of fiber optics, but yeah, uh, that's an investment. But it's an investment for the future uh, because these technologies and computers, even if that computer is is four hundred million dollars to build the thing, it's probably in that ballpark. Um, Microsoft is all in on making investments like that right now for the future. They know what these things are going to be doing 10 years from now, where it's going to be, it is going to be your pocket assistant for helping you navigate modern life. 
I mean, it's already doing stuff like that where if I don't want to write a bunch of boilerplate code um, for something that I'm testing out, uh, I certainly don't do this for like PRs, but if I'm, if I'm doing a demo of something for myself, I'm like, hey, I'm trying to learn this API. I want to see what's possible. I could go to four or five different websites, read through the docs, look at the source code and hack something together in 30 minutes. Or I can can very clearly define to ChatGPT3 what library I'm using, what I want it to do. And I want it to generate code for me that I can then copy and paste into a note, notebook environment and just run the test and see what happens. It's It generates that in 15 seconds for me. And it teaches me, if I ask it questions, I'm like, hey, I don't quite follow how this thing works or, hey, are there any other ways that I can manipulate this part of the code? It'll teach me. It'll be like, yeah, you can do that and here's how to do it. So it's it's like, search on steroids it's the the next evolution of stack overflow where it's basically an amalgamation of all the you know 1000 plus upvote answers that are out there because it just works most of the time most of the time yeah yeah it's it's been interesting to see how it's changed some of my friends' work lives um one friend is applying to new jobs and they have started every single cover letter with a chat GPT uh, written entry, and then they edit it accordingly. Um, they also have been using it to sort of in place of Google to summarize definitions in finance or whatever it may be. So mm-hmm. it's it's been incredible to see how it's already changing some workflows. But this, so this supercomputer is absolutely massive, built custom for OpenAI. Uh, but let's talk about the training data that went into this supercomputer to actually build the ChatGPT3. So for context, there have been three iterations, uh, at least publicly released, to ChatGPT. ChatGPT2 was trained on 10 billion tokens, and a token you can basically think of as a word. ChatGPT3 had 499 billion tokens. And just looking at the breakdown, uh, 410 billion of them were common crawl, so essentially just web text. Um, another 19 was a separate set of web text. And then there were two sets of books, one with 12 billion tokens and one with 55 billion tokens. And then finally, they trained on, on just a little bit of Wikipedia at 3 billion tokens. So Ben, can you start to describe the scale of this training data or is it even possible? So one thing to, to be clear on with the term if we're talking talking about classifiers and talking about tokens, like token count, there's not 499 billion words in existence. Um, even the English language has a lot, a lot of words, even if you include slang and stuff in there. Not that many words, though. So what they're referring to is relationships between tokens. So think of it as like sentences. Um, the token... You know, maybe the word A uh, is token zero. It's not usually in these models, but it'll have some sort of embedding associated with it. So you have this vocabulary that is list of words in language X. And then that's mapped to basically an integer index position so that that corpus of definitions is common between 
the tokenizer where you're converting to the indices, the model has those references that are locked in there as well. And then when you decode the output of any of these language models, you're converting it back into collections of words or a single word or whatever. Um, but the training data has has the, these sequences components. So it, you'll have, as that sentence is constructed, different combinations of, uh, of tokens that are in there. Uh, so when you talk about all those permutations of, hey, this is how a sentence could be crafted, um, it's not the raw sentence that we would be generating if we're having a conversation or like communicating back and forth in Slack or something. There's a lot of terms that are dropped that are just not important. They don't have contextual reference. And that's to limit the size of how big the model would have to be. So there's there's preprocessor stages that happen in any of these models that's like, hey, stop words, get rid of those. I don't care about words like the and a and an and, you know, certain pronouns are dropped because they're not dropped, but more collapsed into a single term. So there's cleanup that happens. And usually with these models, if you're using a pre-trained one, 80 to 90 percent of your work is doing that stuff is cleaning your data up and cleaning up your tokens and making sure that you're te- you're training on just relevant things uh, that you want the model to learn which is one of the reasons why building these things from scratch if you've never done one before is a, a truly insurmountable task unless you have a team of you know 400 world-class engineers working on it right yeah, so those tokens are not individual words. I just looked it up. There's uh, 170,000 words in the English language. Yep. So um, it's about the combinations of the tokens. And we will hopefully get into that in just a sec on how it actually maintains, quote unquote, attention and self-attention between different tokens. But before we get into that, um, I just wanted to also chat about some implications of ChatGPT. And I think there's a lot of discussion about how it's going to take jobs or at least change jobs. But another area of concern is security and cybersecurity. So it's clear that ChatGPT can generate text and it can use those to develop phishing uh, attacks at a very large scale. So I can create 100,000 emails, all customized to a given user, send them out, and hopefully I'll get some credit card numbers or passwords back. But beyond that, what else can ChatGPT do in terms of security, in your opinion? I mean, if you're a nefarious actor who wants to use some sort of automated system to generate phishing attacks or just generate spam, um, there's nothing that ChatGPT3 does that ChatGPT2 can't do. You can always, I mean, these models are, ChatGPT3 isn't out there in the wild for you to just take and retrain, but its predecessor is. Uh, there's a, there's loads of language models that are there on, on Hugging Face Marketplace that could do all sorts of stuff. Some are pre-trained from the marketplace that like a user took, pre-trained on a certain data set, and then re-uploaded that does this one unique thing because it was trained to do that one unique thing. Uh, I saw one two days ago while I was, uh, trying to figure out what outputs uh, certain uh, tokenizers on decode could do with certain different language ar- uh, architectures. 
and somebody trained, uh, this is actually a Hugging Place employee did it, and they wrote a a lyrics generator from ChatGPT2's base core model, which is just the GPT-2 model. And <clears throat> you type in the name of a famous artist from, you know, basically if they've ever been on the billboard top 100, it's been trained on their body of, of work. Uh, so the train set's pretty big, uh, but you type in the artist and you, and then you just say, Hey, generate 10 iterations of song lyrics that seem like they, they would make sense from this artist. Is it perfect? No. Uh, did it generate some that you're like, I could totally see this being, uh, a song that this person would write. Yes. So it, you wouldn't hook something like that up in an automated fashion to be like, Hey, connect to the outputs of this and send it to my SMTP server. So I can start, you know, spamming out to all these email addresses. Nefarious person would know that that would get your IP address blacklisted by all major mail carriers within seconds anyway. So they would create all of these, you know, bot networks globally running, you know, against VPNs that will be changing their IP address after every 10 emails that get generated. And they'll be using, you know, some mail service that is anonymous uh, so that they can't be tracked. But you could do that today. It seems scary. You know, the media blows this up and people are like, oh, my God, it's really hard to tell if this is a person or not. Uh but people doing illegal stuff are already doing this. And some of them are fairly sophisticated. But one thing to keep in mind, if you're using a mail service like Gmail, uh, I can promise you that the company that runs that has incredibly sophisticated filters that are based in deep learning, that are searching uh, the contents of every mail that's coming through. It doesn't take long for it to adapt and start detecting this stuff. So even if somebody used chat GPT-3 to create all this stuff, your mail provider, there's really smart people there, uh, they're gonna start blocking it. Got it. The second component of this question is, all right, well, if Gmail can adapt and learn that chat GPT is spamming lots of people, well, chat GPT can write code, so can't it adapt? No. <laughs> um, you can do some clever things with it, as I've done with software stuff where I've kind of taught it how to, to write code in certain ways um, just to see what would happen. Like, Hey, are you familiar with this language? Yes, I am. Okay. I'm going to send, I'm going to give you some Scala code and I want you to rewrite this in Python. And it, it's really great at doing stuff like that. And then when you find an issue, you tell it, no, nah, that's not quite right. Or, Hey, I don't like that the way that you wrote that. Can you, can you perhaps make that more efficient or can you make it more compact or, Hey, can you add, you know, exception handling to this? Uh, it, it does that. It does it very, very well. Uh, arguably better than most humans. So it, it can do all of that stuff, but you can't tell it, Hey, can you write me a, a nefarious bit of code that will try to hack AES encrypted hashes? And it, it will, I actually haven't tried that. I don't know if it'll do that. Maybe it will. Don't do that at home, kids. Um, but even if it were to do that, 
uh, you would still have to extract whatever it, it generates and execute it on your own execution environment, which is illegal, by the way. Um, you can't tell it to execute code to the outside world. In fact, you can't tell it to search for something that happened yesterday. You can't say like, hey, this thing happened in the news and ask it like, hey, do you have any details on this thing? It doesn't have access. Its knowledge base is is cut off at some time in 2021 because that's when its training set ends. So it doesn't have reference to modern things because it's not actually, it's not alive. <laughs> you know, it it's a model that is basing its text generation on data that's been trained on and it, that it's in its vocabulary. So new things it doesn't have reference to. Uh, it also doesn't have the ability to instantiate an execution environment and execute code on its own. It, that's not possible. It can write text that's formatted like code so it looks like it's an IDE, but it's not an IDE. It can't execute that code. <clears throat> if it could, uh, I would start being concerned. Um, I don't think the sponsor of OpenAI, Microsoft, would allow that to happen, even if they wanted that to happen. Uh, who knows how dangerous something like that could get. If you could coerce it to writing, to, to iterating through, you could tell something like this, hey, I want you to try to you know, hack into the, the database for this government organization. And can you see what their security profile looks like? What, what would a bot like this do that's, that has the wealth of knowledge of software developers on GitHub? It would be like, hey, I know how to how to inspect communication protocols. I know how to, you know, attempt to discover every service that's running on this on this mainframe or the server and try all of the default passwords because that's all on the internet too. But it would be able to say, I don't just want a single thread that's doing this because it would know how to do multi-threading <laughs> on a computer, and it would also have reference for how do I create an AWS account for free. Oh, I can do that real quick. Here's, and then I can, you know, use Terraform to spin up all these, these uh, services. Oh, I hit my limit. I know that I can only have, you know, this many on a, on a, sh like on a free community edition. Well, what if I just spin up a hundred thousand community edition instances on every AWS region globally? Done. Five minutes later, <clears throat> it's now running, you know, 400 threads on an, a concurrent thread pool with 800,000 shells and it's all attacking you know this one server and trying to basically do penetration testing you've now created a ddos bot that can take down you know a lot of things so nobody's going to want to do that well okay so at the beginning of this security conversation, I was very happy with, with the answers. It can do phishing and it can't really hack anything. But what is the step that is between it is not connected to the internet and it is connected to the internet that would allow it to be such a powerful DDoSing server? You would have to have the ability for it to execute a command structure where a <clears throat> the server that's hosting the web app, the REST API that you're connecting to when you, when you go into the service, there would have to be a backend service there that allows it to execute arbitrary code. 
That does not exist for very good reason. Could you build that? You and I could build that in probably a week. It wouldn't be that that challenging. You would have to basically teach it or let it know that in order to execute code, this is the the command that you need to produce as a, a header token in your response, which would then call this service, which would spin up a, a Linux shell that would execute whatever it tells it to do. And then you could coerce it to say, all right, I want you to execute this this Linux command that gives you access to these services. Go nuts. And then you could just tell it like, hey, can you try to do this thing? All of that is impossible because nobody's going to build that backend service because that would be dangerous in our current modern architecture of, of cloud-based computing. What if I'm a terrorist? I mean, you would have to have access to that server in order to create that. And you'd have to retrain the model yourself to make it aware that it has this capability. There would probably be a bunch of, of code that would have to be written to enable this functionality. But it's certainly not not beyond the, the realm of possibility for a couple of dedicated people who want to do something like that. But you'd need access to that that data center, and right. that's not opened up for uh, for public access. Got it. So the only wall between DDoSing the U.S. government and not DDoSing the U.S. government is OpenAI and their servers. Well, the, the only wall that exists between that is the threat of the federal penitentiary system in the United States. That's a felony. Like, <laughs> does anybody want to play around and, and get slapped with a 20-year prison sentence in federal prison for messing around, being like, hey, it'd be really cool if we did this? Not really. <laughs> like, the FBI will not find that funny. Uh, let's just say that. Probably. <laughs> But is ChatGPT3, does it have the technical capability of doing that based on my interaction with it about code generation? It most certainly is. Got it. So it can do a simple attack like DDoS. Can it do something more sophisticated like building a new uh, encryption decryption algorithm? I think that generating things that are based on prior knowledge, something like encryption, is entirely within its capabilities. Is it guaranteed to work? No. Um, can it cobble together and infer things that might work? Sure. It's pretty good at that based on my testing. Um, the code doesn't always run, but at least it's it's making an effort on things that it, it it's inferring that are, are related to one another. The, the challenge would be getting it to build something entirely novel you would have to coach it to a certain point where it it understands the relationships of what you're you're telling it to do based on its prior knowledge which arguably all new things are based on prior, prior knowledge so you could theor theoretically say yes it's capable of doing that <laughs> i haven't pushed it to that level yet to be like hey i want you to create an api that that it is capable of retraining yourself. Uh, I think that's a, a bit of a stretch. Um, 
but you certainly can have it work out things that could potentially be dangerous but it can't execute it so it's still the user would have to be the one that's that's taking that and running it and as as i just mentioned with the fbi's lack of a sense of humor um if you were to execute that that code that it generates for you that's trying to crack an encryption protocol um i certainly hope you like uh the back of vans and uh seeing the world through uh bars that's my my favorite thing to do on a saturday morning cool all right so we have a little bit of time left let's do a quick technical overview of how chat gpt works um, and then we can tee up for the next episode something that ben and i were chatting about before which is how you can actually go about learning to implement things like this um, specifically in hugging face so before we get into that let's just quickly sort of on a technical level explain how the system works so the architecture is a decoder only transformer network with a 2048 token long context um, and then within that, it has 175 billion parameters, which is just completely unprecedented in this in this space. So let's sort of break down each of these components one by one. So what is a encoder or a decoder, Ben? So in, encoders and decoders, if we're talking about um, tokenizers, that's that, hey, I'm taking human speech text and I'm converting it into those numeric indexes. The That's encoding. Uh, decoding is the opposite. So you just say, hey, this tokenizer that I have these index values, convert it back to the speech so that a person can read it. Because otherwise, it's it's a tensor of, of numbers that have no real meaning to us. Exactly. And so GBT, or the chat GPT frameworks, uh, they are decoder only, so they are essentially generative. Mm-hmm. Um, second thing is a transformer network. And the the sort of baseline reason for having a transformer is to process sequential units or tokens. So it's a logical application for NLP. It's also a logical application for time series where you have sequential data points. And the thing prior to transformers that were the latest craze were recurrent neural networks and especially memory-related uh, recurrent neural networks, so LSTM or GRUs. And in 2017, there was a paper released by uh, Google and UToronto called a, something like All You Need Is Attention or Attention Is All You Need. And they sort of developed this transformer network. And what that transformer network did is it had a few innovations. One is something called positional encodings which is it stores token location in the data instead of embedding it into the neural network structure. So that allowed essentially referencing maybe the first word and the last word of a sentence are very related or two words very close together are very related. Well, no longer do we have to depend on the neural network structure to define that relationship. There's actually a numeric encoding of that relationship. And then another component is attention which is essentially a matrix that helps map those relationships. Um, Ben, in your opinion, how game-changing was the innovation of of a transformer? (laughs) Uh, That's like asking, 
how much did human society change with the automobile uh, if you apply it to ML? Uh, this architecture, <clears throat> to put it into context, like if you wanted to get the performance out of chat that we currently see in ChatGPT3 or in the far more advanced and super awesome DaVinci, uh, if you were to do that in LSTM, that model, you would probably have to take what you spent on that that supercomputer that Microsoft built and just buy hard drives just in order to store the model itself. Because you would have to have all these connections with that reference of like, hey, th this word normally follows this word, but you would have to have all of the, the weights associated with all word relations within sequences that exist within human languages worldwide. So the model would be just so ludicrously large that I don't even think we have compute architecture that would run that properly like you would need to like global spanning data centers in order to to train the thing so this new architecture that that was conceived of is a massive game changer and what it is is applying even more concepts that we have of our understanding of how human language skills uh, relate to like sort of concepts you know, we're not processing when we speak or write or or read, we're not processing each individual, you know, word, effectively a token, and really thinking about the relationship mapping between them. We're we're mapping sort of series of tokens sort of in our mind. We know what words naturally go together and how that changes the meaning and the context of things. So taking, you know, how our minds apply language to our thoughts and applying it mathematically to the data structures, that's the real big game changer here. It allows the model to shrink by so many orders of magnitude, and you can get performance that's actually just, it's revolutionary, both on the training side and on the, the inference side. I'm really yeah, excited for the next iteration where we get one of these models that, yeah, we're talking about, you know, hundreds of billions or potentially trillions of parameters, but the training is is effectively what it was for ChatGPT3 or, or for DaVinci. Like, hey, we have three orders of magnitude increase in complexity and it still trains in three months. That's when you're going to start seeing language models that are like capabilities that are almost scary. Like, wow, this thing is deeply knowledgeable about the vast body of human knowledge up to this point. That's crazy. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I, I am too. Uh, as long as we don't can connect it to a, an executable environment. Um, but just one more shout out on transformers. They're also parallelizable, whereas uh, sequential neural networks prior to that were not. So that has been an equally game-changing component of, of this structure. Mm -hmm. Cool. So we're about at time. I'll do a quick summary. ChatGPT is taking the world by storm. And uh, that said, it's not the most powerful chatbot available or even the most powerful chatbot provided by OpenAI, the creators of ChatGPT. That said, it is still an absolutely giant model that was trained on a supercomputer and that has led to its success. Um, but it also leverages a decoder-only transformer network, which is really innovative. And combining that with the scale of the both the training data and the, the computer to train it, 
it has led to a really, really robust product. Definitely. So until next time, it's been Michael Burke and my co-host, Ben Wilson. And have a good day, everyone. Take it easy.